Quantum mechanics is cool. It studies how physical elements behave in the universe. For example, one of the properties of light is that photons can be sent in one of two modes, either vertically and horizontally, or plus 45 degrees or minus 45 degrees. Within each mode, one orientation could represent the digital equivalent of a zero and the other a digital equivalent of one. Thus, different modes of light can be used to create a unique and very powerful encryption key. Quantum mechanics affords greater security since the observer can't take measurements to determine which way a photon is sent without altering it. A problem that's best explained by Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. At Black Hat USA 2008, I actually saw a prototype for a high-speed quantum key distribution system demonstrated by the National Institute of Science and Technology, or NIST. Quantum encryption systems achieve this by using lasers to generate specific modes of photons. The resulting sequence, if agreed upon by the sender, Bob, and the receiver, Alice, is the key that they both share. In reality, Bob never sees a majority of the photons being sent. Why? That's because Alice has told Bob how to filter the mode, one way or another, to decrypt Alice's intended message. Here's the beauty of it. If another party, Eve, tries to eavesdrop, assuming she chooses the same filter that Bob did, she will destroy the original photon immediately upon interception. To keep Bob and Alice from knowing that she is listening, Eve would have to generate another string to send to Bob. In doing so, Eve would also introduce errors. Why? Because she too is not seeing the entire string being sent from Alice. And if there's a significant number of errors, Alice and Bob can end the call and choose another encryption key, thus mitigating any man-in-the-middle attack. That's regarding communication. But what happens when computational power of quantum computing is applied to encryption that we currently depend on for banking and e-commerce? This is the story of how we might protect those systems that we currently have and how we might build new systems for banking and other industries in the quantum future. I'm Robert Famosi. You're listening to Error Code. This is a really cool story. Unfortunately, it's going to get deep into the weeds pretty quickly, but I'll ask you to bear with me on this. I already teased a bit about how quantum encryption will help secure communication, but how will it help us in computing in general? To answer that, I turn to an expert. Kip Sanzeri, co-founder and COO at QSecure. QSecure provides quantum resilient security. Okay, what's that? The idea being that when quantum computers are powerful enough to break our encryption, we're going to need the security in place. So it's a new type of cybersecurity, different than what we've used uh, traditionally. So we're trying to get this out in front of the curve before uh, it's too late. I studied physics and astronomy in college. And growing up, I once thought I wanted to be an astrophysicist. So does one have to have a PhD in physics to necessarily understand quantum computing? I don't. In fact, I'm the furthest from a PhD. I, in fact, if people look at my background, they'll be like, why are you even in this business? Um, no, I don't. But I became enamored with quantum physics just as a layman, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Ah, so you don't need to have a PhD to get the very basics. When you begin to understand what happens at the subatomic level and what we see at the, we call it the Newtonian level, which is how we exist. It's based on what we can sense, right? Uh, but at subatomic level, everything down there is different. In fact, many things don't even exist. Okay, let's pull back a bit. What Skip is saying is that the rules are different at the subatomic level. Not a different universe, but a different way of looking at our universe. You might hear Skip talk about Newtonian worldview. You have an object, and you can hold that object in a state, for example, if it's solid. Then there's the quantum worldview, which could be all the states at once. Gas, liquid, solid. So at Hacker Summer Camp 2022, Skip and I were at a table at one end of the breakout areas at Black Hat and Mandalay Bay. In a podcast, you really can't see that, but imagine us sitting there at a table. This table that you and I are sitting at, it seems solid, but it's really not. There's really nothing there. You get into things like wave-particle duality and how things are in superposition and entanglement. These properties that make up everything, you and I, everything that we know, have no relationship to our world. 
And so I started looking at that, and I thought, well, wait a minute, this is really odd. Then I heard of quantum computing. I thought, well, they're making computers based on subatomic properties? Yeah, quantum computing is different for a lot of reasons. At a high level, you can think of it as having more options for computation. The fact that light can have two modes and combinations within those two modes. So that means the resource-intensive computing, some of which we can handle with high-speed parallel processing today, can be made even more quickly with a quantum computer. But we're not there yet. These new machines, they're still being built. So I started looking at D-Wave, had already sort of commercialized something, more of a simulator, not a true quantum computer, although they're changing that. But it became uh, evident that there was a lot of movement here. Um, I started asking around. We started seeing that there was more and more companies sort of jumping in, Google, IBM, of course, uh, in other countries. you got folks like Alibaba coming in. And they started putting some money behind this. China has this 2025 initiative, and quantum computing is on the list of achievement, along with artificial intelligence, electric cars, etc. And I can attest, there's a lot of interest, not just in China, but here in the United States, particularly in Silicon Valley. And then there was another thing happening that was really interesting, and that is that the standard architecture that we use today, CMOS, which is our, basically how most of our chipsets are made, you know, they've pushed so much into these chipsets now that the electrons are starting to interfere with each other. CMOS stands for Complementary Metal Oxide Semiconductor, which is a type of metal oxide semiconductor field-efficient transistor, or MOSFET. Okay, a lot of acronyms and not much meaning. Simply put, CMOS technology is used for constructing integrated circuit trips. It's cool because CMOS devices do not produce as much waste heat as other forms of transistor-transistor logic. And in part, that's because other methods would have some standing current even when it's not in a changing state. CMOS is used to integrate high-intensity logic functions into a chip without overheating it. So CMOS started about 1963, and now we're 60 years later, and we've kind of maxed out its potential. The efficiencies are diminishing. Moore's Law, which we've know about, we've heard about, um, that's over now. So we're not getting those gains anymore. But at the same time, you have AI that's skyrocketing, right, with, with uh, capability and need. Data that's, you know, we're producing more data in a year than we did in all human history every year. All of that is pushing against an architecture of CMOS that's diminishing. For example, the average new car generates a lot of data. And if we're to achieve fully autonomous vehicles, we're going to have to be able to process even more data than we process today. To give you an idea how, um, even how rudimentary CMOS is at some problems, so there's this problem called the traveling salesperson. It's where you take a salesperson and you want them to go to 10 different cities and you want to find the optimal route. Now, what's the fastest route between the 10 cities? A supercomputer can't even do that. Cannot figure that out. 10 cities, not 1,000 cities, 10. But see, that's, that style of problem just turns CMOS on its head. Quantum, whatever, you know, you're done with that. So we as humans really do need a new form of computing. We need something that's going to be able to process all of this data, multivariate problems, etc. Quantum computing has that promise. It's starting to happen. Okay, so the Dell laptop that I'm working on here, it's a CMOS architecture. There are binary gates of high voltage and low voltage, ones and zeros, as the electrons race back and forth within the chips. If the electron is too aggressive, you start generating heat, which ultimately slows everything down. We've known this, and we've worked out how to mitigate this, but not necessarily how to fix it, in part because of physics. Chips today are operating at around the 5 to 7 nanometer space. That means the circuits are that small, and a single electron can move 5 to 7 nanometers to make a change for a calculation. But we're coming up against cold, hard physics. When you start getting down to the three nanometer level, that's tiny. And guess what? We're approaching subatomic levels. We're approaching quantum. So quantum computing, yeah, it's going to be something different entirely. What we're used to, again, thinking of this CMOS architecture. So this was a human construct. 
So back when we thought of this as humans, they thought, well, we can use these zeros and ones in combination to process things. Uh, and then that they started building chips on that. We, you know, we have really good runs, and most of our stuff works, right? Your phone works most of the time, and our, our laptops work most of the time, and you know, it's not bad. Um, however, now that that has run out of steam, that whole process has slowed, um, we have to start looking at new forms of computing. So that's not to say we've given up on CMOS. No, they keep working on getting down to that three nanometer level, trying to fit even more on even less. Meanwhile, we're running out of materials that we need for these chips. Now there's some other ways people are trying to tackle getting better at CMOS, but quantum computers operate completely different. Okay, if you've seen the Ant-Man movies, Scott has visited and even got stuck in the quantum realm. Of course, that's the Marvel universe, and he's able to come back and save the world. But the fiction starts to get into the craziness that we're talking about here. These new quantum computers, they operate off of subatomic particles in the quantum realm. Um, you'll hear things like superposition and entanglement. So let's dive into those a little bit. So superposition is a subatomic property. The superposition feature of quantum system states that any object exists in several separate quantum states all at the same time. So, the superposition is a combination of all the possible quantum states. All possible states. That's where we start to get into weirdness like multiple universes and such. Actually, it's the same universe, but we're seeing all the different possibilities. And by the way, these run, these run the world. We don't see them, we don't know of them, but they run the world and all the tests have shown this, all the research. But superposition means that a qubit or a quantum bit can be in any position um, at, at the same time, and all positions at the same time. Okay, I'm going to let that sit there a moment. So a quantum bit, which is a unit of quantum computing, exists in all possible positions at the same time. If you think of it that way, then it's easier to understand how quantum computing will be able to render calculations much, much faster than the current binary system that we use right now. It's very hard to understand fundamentally, right? Because we don't, it doesn't exist in our Newtonian world. But think of it this way, that if you had a basketball and you have vectors, like you could have an arrow that goes kind of up and to the left and one up to the right, down this way, this way, you know, a sphere with an arrow, those are all positions. A qubit is in all of those positions at the same time until it becomes a particle. This is the wave-particle duality. Wave-particle duality. What's that? This is Einstein's suggestion that light did not behave exactly like a wave or a particle. Instead, Einstein argued that light behaves both as a wave and a particle. To explain the behavior of light, you couldn't just use a wave definition or a particle definition. You needed to use a little of both. And that gets us back to quantum physics. Superpositions are where combinations of all the possible options exist at once. So, and this was proven, they did the double slit experiment, which was an amazing experiment. Okay, so the double slit experiment is one I'm sure you saw in school, but it's worth a refresher. You have a laser, and you have a card with two parallel slits, and then you shine the light through the slits onto a distant screen. Here's the thing, the light interferes with each other going through the slits, so what appears on the resulting screen is a series of bright and dark lines, where the peak of one beam of light going through the slit interferes with the trough of another light going through the slit, the result is a dark spot. When the peaks or the troughs from both slits line up, you get a bright spot. If light were just particles, that wouldn't happen. This superposition now means that if you take one of these and think of it now as a processor and you're able to say, if I have a problem with a lot of variables and this qubit can be in any position, that means theoretically it could be, no matter what that variable is, it could be in that qubit. In other words, that qubit could handle it. The power starts happening when you take a second qubit and add it to it, and a third and a fourth and a fifth, and you keep adding qubits. Um, the idea is that these become exponential in nature. So this is important. Each qubit is exponential. So, increase from one qubit to two qubits is doubling the capacity. And the increase from two qubits to three qubits doubles it again. 
So if you say you have five qubit system, that might not sound like it's a lot, but really it is. So when I have 100 qubits lined up or 50, any number, when I add one more, I double the power. So let's say, Robert, you had a standard series of 50 servers in a data center, CMOS. If you add one more server, you have 51. But in a qubit sense, if you have one more, you're, you're now at 2 to the 52nd. You just double the 51st. That's a really large number. Fortunately, Skip has an analogy to help us to understand that size. The easiest analogy I always remembered was if I was to say to you, hey, I'll give you $150,000 an hour, I'll give you a penny doubled a day for 30 days, what do you want? And most people are like, well, I'll take the 150. No, penny double a day is 5.5 million. The exponential power. Okay, exponential power? Don't underestimate it. So another way to think of this, and you think of this, this power that just sits there, Google's, uh, Google's system uh, that they put together um, and I want to say it was 60, no, 73 qubits. This was when they, they, they proved quantum supremacy, which means they could do a task faster than the rate of computer. They proved that they could do in less than two minutes what it would take IBM's supercomputer at Oak Ridge National Labs something like 10 million years to do the same calculation um, because of this exponential nature. In other words, 2 to the 73rd gets to be a pretty big number. There's a lot of zeros there. If you just had 300 qubits, which would be two to the 300th, this number is gonna be pretty phenomenal to think about. But you would actually, that number is larger than there are atoms in the entire universe. Atoms. This table alone probably has 10 trillion atoms. But two to the 300th, that's one quantum computer. Right now we're in the 100 qubit area. We're going to the 300 qubit area pretty quick. In other words, IBM, Google, PsyQuantum, IonQ, they're all heading towards hundreds of qubits. In fact, most of them have said they'll have a thousand qubits plus by 2025. Two to the one thousandths, our minds can't handle that. Which brings up a very good question. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. I often keep that as my mantra when I'm talking about technology with companies, particularly in the IoT space. We're talking about superpositions and wave particle duality. But to what end? And what do we do with this information? Well, multivariate problems like um, aeronautic design, where you have you actually have to um, you have to map every single subatomic particle that hits one of those airplane wings, um, and what the behavior is going to be in order to really understand how to make that efficient, and um, crushes standard computing, um, genomics, uh, protein folding, um, chemistry where in material science, where you're saying, okay, if I want to make a new material, I got to understand, let's say maybe between, I don't know, three atoms, you're trying to put in a molecule or something. I got to understand every electron interaction, which becomes an exponential problem. Well, you need an exponential solution. Maybe you're like, okay, so I can see how manufacturing can really benefit from all this. Actually, we all can benefit from this. Weather prediction. Um, on and on. All of these multivariate problems can be solved because you've got these qubits in superposition. And then what you do is you line them all up, then you run that process. So what Skip is showing me with his hands in the air are several qubits, and he's lining them up over the table between us. Now the problem is that these are very wispy and uh, ethereal. They, they they come and go out of the universe, literally. They come, into, they come into our existence and disappear, and people don't even know where they go, where they come from. They're just there. But if you, can, if you can harness those, and we call entangle those, in other words, bring them all together, run that process, you can process immense amount, immense amount of data in that one process. Now, the thing falls apart quickly, so you're trying to keep those what we call coherent. You try to keep those together as long as possible, milliseconds, a second. I mean, that's all you'll get out of them now. But if you can hold that process, you can do a lot with it. So you're dealing with these wispy, ethereal things. And that is the first part of quantum computing that makes it so interesting. The second part is the entanglement piece. So I said superposition was one, entanglement's another. Entanglement is the most interesting subatomic property. It's one Einstein didn't believe in, said it didn't exist. But it does, because they've proven it. Quantum entanglement is when two particles, which may be separated by billions of miles in space, can be linked together. 
Basically, if you change the polarity in one, you instantaneously change the other. Entanglement is where you take two subatomic particles, and there's a way that scientifically they create a relationship with each other where they think they're one particle. They take these two, they split them across great distances. They've proven mathematically, not yet, uh, but, but they've proven on the Earth, uh, later mathematically, that you could separate these by a universe. In other words, across the universe. When you spin this particle, this will reverse spin instantly. Space and time don't exist. In other words, that particle that you took and sent across the universe, it doesn't care about space-time. It's not, it's not the speed of light. Quantum entanglement was used as a plot device in Gregory Benford's classic science fiction novel, Timescape, in which scientists from the future use quantum entanglement to send a message, one particle at a time, to a researcher many years in the past, who notes the change in the quantum particles, who deciphers the messages, and ends up changing the timeline so that John F. Kennedy ends the Vietnam War early, among other things. But that entanglement now, so if you're able to make all these, they think they're one, run your process, and you will crush multivariate problems. For humanity, this could solve so many things for us. Um, but like I said, the, what you found out very quickly, job one, was that these are being weaponized. Say that again? Prior to these things being used for great applications for humanity, they're going to be weaponized. And that's what we're up against now. So, so th you know, this is an extremely interesting space, and we can dive into details on quantum and cyber, whatever you'd like to do. And one of those areas is public key cryptography, which is fundamental to our e-commerce and finance systems today. A lot of things that we take for granted right now because we think the internet is safe. We have those things today, but one of these machines in the wrong hands, that could obliterate all that. So you think of healthcare, um, yeah, you want to disrupt something? Disrupt all the healthcare, shut it down so there's none of that. Uh, food supplies and logistics, um, energy grids, um, water supplies. I mean, what do you want to do? You know, and again, finance and banking, real estate. If you can introduce doubt in the real estate market and you can hack into you know, how people are doing online transactions like signing deeds and mortgages, you know, I mean, throw doubt in that and you know, we're, it, you've got a multi-trillion dollar problem. So, and, it, and the thing is, again, every industry now has become largely digital. So that just means it's all available on this thing called the internet with uh, a computer coming at it that can hack the encryption that it uses. So what does that mean to decrypt the encryption we're using today? Yeah, you're revealing in clear text what has been obfuscated by encryption. But how does it work through all the block ciphers? How does it detangle what's hidden inside? Peter Shore wrote an algorithm, it's called Shore's Algorithm. I want to say it was in the 80s or 90s, but it essentially said that if you were able to use this exponential effect, you could crack um, something like factoring. So the, the cybersecurity we use, we use for the internet, the encryption for the internet, um, it, the security is based on factoring a large number. So it's a single transaction to decrypt. Now it's very difficult, and this is where standard compute can't crack it, right? If you take a, you know, even a supercomputer, you try to crack a large number like RSA 2048, not going to get through it for, I mean, you could run processes for some say millions of years, you still won't get through it. But a quantum computer, because now what you're using those qubits, remember that exponential effect, the superposition? So you've got all these lined up saying that they could be in all the positions at the same time. Again, I'm just going to let that sit there a moment. One quantum machine can obliterate our entire encryption schema for finance and healthcare and other industries. If you want your, your dinner party conversation, next time you go to a dinner party and somebody asks you at the dinner table, happens all the time, they say, hey Robert, how many qubits does it take to crack Shor's algorithm? And you'll answer, well, it's easy, it's 2n plus 3. So 4,100 qubits will crack Shor's. In other words, two times the key length, 2048, which would be 4096 plus three is 4100. Um, some say there is a, there's a, um, a faster way to do it as well, but th th there's a lot of um, development around that, let's just say. But point being is that factoring a large number is really easy for quantum because of the exponential effect. So it's not a matter of really if, it's only a matter of when. These computers are powerful enough and our entire world relies, thanks to the internet, on public key cryptography and things like RSA and ECC. 
and these are based on factoring. So these sit out there waiting, meaning that the entire world has to upgrade cryptography. Someone at Black Hat many years ago told me about this problem. At the time, Google was still hovering around the low qubits. Hard then to estimate the seriousness of the threat. But in the last few years, it's gotten pretty serious. Remember Y2K? The rush to get every computer system upgraded so that at 1201, when the year hits 2000, airplanes didn't fall out of the sky? Well, it's kind of like that effort. And it's kind of on that same timeline. This is the largest upgrade cycle in computer history, hands down. You know, way bigger than Y2K. Way bigger. Some people call it Y2Q. When that happens, when somebody has a computer powerful enough, they will go through all encryption. They'll access any data that's been previously stolen, and they'll decrypt it all. There are nation states right now that are harvesting data. They know they can't get through it. They may try a little bit here and there, can't get through it. They're just harvesting, waiting for the day when they have a quantum computer to crack it. If that data has value, in other words, if that data is financial data, needs 25 years of protection, healthcare, 75 years, um, military secrets, nuclear secrets, some of these things are 50 years. Um, if they're through this data and, and it can access it in five, seven years, they've got decades of use of that data. And so this is the real problem, is thanks to quantum's awesome exponential power, it is able to reduce something like factoring down to zero really, really quickly. As chilling as that sounds, it's one thing for Google to have 100 qubits and so forth. What's it like for the bad guys to come up with that? And how expensive would it be for those criminals? Certain nation states, uh, which won't be named here, um, are investing, um, one of them, over $15 billion uh, in a system just to crack RSA, building quantum systems. Um, some say that number goes as high as $100 billion. We've seen information on uh, teams of people. Uh, we've seen numbers uh, with PhDs, uh, computer scientists, mathematicians, as high as 1,800 working on this one system. Uh, by the way, 1,800 is larger than all of the folks in quantum computing in the entire U.S. right now. Uh, and they're all directed at breaking RSA because how much data has been harvested already. So take all the data breaches we have today, all the encryption that protects the stolen data in those files today. That data could be released with quantum computers tomorrow. And this is what Skip's company is trying to do. They're trying to get ahead of the problem today. What we're trying to do and others are trying to do is we're trying to make sure the U.S. is ready when that happens. Um, we feel like we're already too late. We feel like it's already too late in some cases. For data that's been harvested, it's already too late, it's gone. Nothing can be done. Now, if your data is on someone else's servers, it's too late. There's nothing you can do. Um, we're trying to protect future data from getting harvested, and then even if it gets harvested, if we can apply some quantum algorithms to it, it'll have resilience against that, that decryption. So, but we gotta start now. And we're telling everybody, I mean, our intelligence community knows, the State Department knows, we're now educating commercial. You gotta start looking at that upgrade right now. So what are we supposed to do if the data is already being harvested? Nothing. But what can we do going forward? What you're trying to do now is you're trying to protect communications, data in use, and data in transit, and you're trying to protect data at rest. So in other words, data that's stored, you want to encrypt that with post-quantum, and the data that's moving, you want to create post-quantum channels. So and again, the, the data that is out there today that's moving around the internet, um, Everything we do, like I send you a text, I call you, we send email, uh, you access something over the internet, it's all standard encryption. It's all available. If somebody's listening in, they can grab it. And there's plenty of listening stations. Just, you know, look at, you know, companies that have been sort of caught and kicked out of the U.S. for, you know, listening in on things. Well, they're doing it elsewhere in the world, too, collecting that data. But any of that is all available. And if and even satellite data, you think. If you think satellites are somehow protected because they're in space, you might want to listen to episodes one and two of Ericode, where I talk with some folks from the U.S. Space Force's Hackasat program. Really, this is a problem today. You think about satellites. When, when the early satellites went up, they weren't thinking of security. Why do you have to secure them? They're all the way up there. Well, guess what? The communications are coming down. Those are radio waves, just radio waves. I mean, I've, I've seen YouTube videos where uh, some MIT kids with $500 of TV satellite hardware with an antenna can download data and start decrypting it. 
it's wide open. So these are all things that have to be secured. But but again, it, it ha we have to start now because the upgrade process is even going to take, you know, years and years and years to upgrade all this. NIST has already funded research into quantum proof encryption. Remember, a quantum computer will make RSA 2048 insignificant once we get 300 qubit machines. The idea is to stop using encryption today that we know will fail with quantum computing tomorrow. I mean, we're just out there as a company trying to provide a solution to help. That's what we do. So QSecure is providing, we're taking these algorithms and we're orchestrating them and we're making them backwards compatible so they can fit in the enterprise without causing a lot of problems. And we're allowing these enterprises to start, and government agencies to start that upgrade process, start the churn. And it's going to take time. Nothing, and it's not a wholesale shift. You just don't rip out your stuff and start new. You start with certain parts of the network, certain servers, and you start upgrading them, and then you keep moving down the line. We like to say, start with the start with the server that handles the lunch menus. You know, that way, if there's a mistake, whatever. Okay, lunch didn't get somebody didn't get their hamburger today. All right, got it. But not your fundamental data. But we want people to start experimenting with it. Just try it. Just start using it. Get used to it because. Um, this year alone, I mean, the movement this year at the government level, there were two initiatives from the White House. One was in January and another one in May, and both those initiatives were mandates to federal agencies to start the upgrade process. So now it's no longer a choice. They have to upgrade. And we, have, we actually won an SBIR 3, Phase 3, which allows us to provide that now to any government agency. But federal government is moving. Also NIST, they had their algorithm contest, right? The target date was 2026 that they were going to announce. Then it went to 2025. Then it went to 2024. And then it went to 2023. And then two months ago, we heard it was going to be July 5th. And they announced on July 5th, these are the finalists. On July 5th, 2022, NIST announced the four quantum-resistant cryptographic algorithms. This was the result of a six-year investigation where they asked the world's leading cryptographers to devise and then vet encryption methods that could resist an attack from a future quantum computer. For general encryption, used when we access websites, for example, NIST has selected Crystal's Cyber Algorithm. Among its advantages are the relatively small encryption keys that two parties can exchange easily, as well as its speed of operation. For digital signatures, often used when we need to verify identities during digital transactions or to sign a document remotely, NIST has selected three different algorithms, Crystal's Dilithium, Falcon, and Sphinx Plus. They sped that up for a reason. The, the intelligence community knows a lot more than we do. Like, I have people on my team that have TSSCI clearances, top secret and it's compartmental, it's highest level security. Um, I, they can't even tell me what they know, but they just say it's bad and it's way worse than we think. So don't believe what you see in, you know, the standard Bloomberg Wall Street Journal article it has nothing to do with anything. These guys are seeing out there what's happening. They know from studying nation states. Last night I sat, you know, we're here at Black Hat. I sat with a counterintelligence expert last night. He said, you have no idea how bad it is. And so what we're... The message is coming through in a way via these White House memos, via NIST's activities to say, everybody start moving now, let's get there. And the other side is, this is just better cryptography. You know, RSA, and this stuff's been around since late 70s. Okay, maybe it's time to change. I mean, there's some practical things to do as well. But I'm still amazed that a nation state or a group of bad people can get together and actually create a quantum computer in their backyard. Some of these nation states, and I think you'll gather the way I'm speaking, go, they have long-term plans. They play the long game, right? In the U.S., we're like, if something doesn't happen the next hour, I'm not interested. You know, I don't, it's like my, we have the attention span, you know, shiny object. Oh, let's go over there, you know. Uh, but these, some of these nation states are there for the long game, and they play that, and they lay in wait. They lay in wait, and, and they just keep building, and in this case, harvesting and harvesting. And again, one of them we believe has upwards of 25% of the world's data already harvested. Um, we consider this an existential threat to our way of life. You and I have been around a little bit. Um, our parents were here, pretty good lives, right? Pretty good lives here in the US. That is at risk. Our future is at risk because the other side of it, if you think of, you know, I mean, the internet, you know, I mean, our, our use of the internet, our practical use of the internet from a broad-based standpoint probably started around 
94, 95, you know, maybe just, you know, where, where it kind of got past, you know, Jughead and Gopher and all this kind of stuff, the Archie names, and became, you know, and Andreessen came, you know, with Netscape, the rest of Mosaic. That's kind of when it became like, hey, we're all getting on there. So it's not been long. And then you think about things like Metaverse coming now where everything's digitized. So your digital footprint goes up every day. They know where you are, what you're doing, what you ate, who you met with. They know we're meeting right now because they can look at our cell phones and go, I see these two cell phones, you know, three feet from each other for, you know, an hour. They know we're meeting, right? Um, you could hack every sensor in this room and be listening right now. They could go in through Siri in the back end and be listening through the phones as well. Um, point is, our digital footprints are going through the roof. And we're trading it for convenience, right? We're trading it all for convenience, or so trading privacy for convenience. But as that digital footprint builds, it just gives anybody who can get into it way more power, way more control. And bad stuff can happen. I mean, you know, that's the, I'm worried. I mean, this is why what, what gets us up every day and, and drives us. We want to build a really big business, like anybody should. But what really drives it is we've got to move and we've got folks on our teams that have been at a lot of sort of DOD type companies, Raytheon and uh, groups like Qualcomm. Uh, and uh, we all want to get this done because we know it's down the road. We know this is going to be in our faces and we know that our digital footprints get bigger every day. So um, that power base, whoever gets that first quantum hack going and if the others aren't ready, they, they will own the world, literally. So we've talked generically about encryption, but it's much more nuanced than all that. And so we talked about asymmetric. So asymmetric, you know, RSA, um, yeah, it's asymmetric key. Um, on the symmetric side, right now, we're okay uh, because we're using AES and, and the NSA and NISTA thought AES is still fairly good. Now, there's another algorithm that was developed by Grover. Um, so there was Peter Shore who did Shore's algorithm, right? Then there was Grover, and Grover did, it was, it's called an exhaustive search algorithm, but essentially the way it applies to AES is it can reduce the key size in half. So if you're running AES-256 and you apply Grover's to it with the right number of qubits, you can bring it down to 128. So far, NSA has said 128 is still safe, so they're not worried about AES yet. But... Uh, they and everybody else is saying that's going to be around two for NIST, you know, that they got to start looking at that. Um, digital signatures are also at risk, although they came up with some of those. The whole idea now is just start testing and using, get, get into this thing. Um, what we did is we built in what we call crypto agility, so we don't care which algorithms we use. We, we, we've already built them all in. So if somebody says that's broken, fine, switch to this, or I don't want that one, I want that one, fine, do that. So that, you've got to be agile, but yeah, I think we've covered a lot of kind of, um, of the issues out there uh, that, that are at hand. It's just, it's just a warning, and, and I think we have, to, we have to wake up. How do we know that this is going to be resilient? Not having a quantum hack out there, it's a little hard. It sounds awfully theoretical. Oh, you got me on that one. Oh, this whole interview is over. Darn it, Robert. I was hoping you didn't ask that. I got to go now. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Of course, Skip really did have an answer. So we can't test yet. We can't test. So it's only mathematical, right? That's all it is at the moment. The best thing we could do now, and, this, and we do get this question, the best thing we do now is we can say, okay, let's say we talk to an enterprise or government agency. We can assess what they have and say, okay, we think these are your vulnerabilities. Now, we can do some, you know, kind of um, white hat hacking in there, right? You know, let's say use a blue team in there and say, okay, blue team, go in, or, you know, maybe a hired red team and go in and just beat this thing up. Find out what the vulnerabilities are with current, and you'll see we got in this way, we got in this way. Now take your quantum algorithms, put them those in there, try those same approaches and see if you get in. That's about the best you can do with it today, is try to see if they'll stop um, the standard hacks, you know, or the best that's out there. And so this is why, and, and NIST and the NSA have already been doing this. They've been testing these things. Um, so this isn't just a kind of a, a cursory review. So they've done a lot of that. NSA is very good at that. Uh, but no one can really prove it. But then again, you also can't wait till it is proven. It'll be way too late. I mean, again, these guys, with some of these networks, it's 10 years to, to upgrade 
all their systems. And you got to go across all nodes. See, the other thing that's happening, this end-by-end problem, is you've got IoT exploding all over the place, right? So, I mean, the room we're in probably, there's probably 500 sensors just on us right now, right? And we're in one small part of the Mandalay, which is expansive. Um, and so all of those need to be secured. You know, you look at the hacks like Target, they came in through a control system, you know, uh, and it, to, to get into their, into their Wi-Fi network. Um, you know, so any single device can be used as a mechanism for entry. And so when you think about post-quantum cyber, you've got to eventually get out to all nodes. So you're thinking about phones and laptops and IoT, of course servers, uh, maybe things like satellites, depending. You know, you want to encrypt that communications data. Um, that's why the upgrade's going to take so long. And by the way, while that's happening, of course, there's more IoT and everything getting added. Business doesn't stop. So it's just a lot of work to do. So this is very much a moving parts problem. You're building the airplane while it's in the air and flying. We use quantum random number generation. Um, and this is, this is actually an interesting component. So in order to develop a key that's truly random, uh, there are devices called quantum random number generators, QRNGs we call them. And what they do is they actually work the opposite of a quantum computer. So a quantum computer has to have coherence. It has to remember all those qubits we've got to line up. We line them all up. We've got to hold that state. We've got to do our process. Also, you've got to reduce noise and heat and everything else. It's trying to, because these things, uh, I mean, they'll run from anything. A little bit of noise, a little bit of heat, and they'll just, they just disappear and they fall apart and you can't keep that coherence. But in a quantum random number generator, you actually want them to decohere. You want them, you want those processes to fall apart because you can't predict how it's going to happen. So you take two or four qubits, that's why these are in production. They're the opposite of a computer. They're actually there just to dissolve. And when they do, then there's a random output. And that random output is truly random. In fact, it's the most random thing in the universe. There's no way to predict it. Because you remember that whole thing about superposition, the wave-particle duality. I got a joke for you, too. So, so your joke is, so there's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You know that one? Okay, that says you can know the position or you can know the velocity of a subatomic particle, but you can't know both at the same time, right? So here's the joke. So the subatomic particle is driving down the freeway. So that's a great start, right? And so it gets pulled over by a CHP officer. And the CHP officer says to the subatomic particle, you know, you were doing 75 miles an hour in a 55, and the subatomic particle says, great, now I'm lost. That's your joke. So anyway, point being is that, you know, when these things dissolve, wave particle, you don't know what, and, and, that, and so the QRNG piece is one piece of hardware we use. We put it in a standard server, but that's just the beginning. That's table stakes to get in the game. Um, of you know being able to provide that, that provides our initial entropy. Now we have to take that and we have to get that all the way out to the network and all the way out to IoT and all the way to the servers and all the way to the satellites and all the way across the whatever. And those things that that um, that system needs to be orchestrated. Keys need to be sent certain places at certain times and they have to be uh, of certain styles. Like, you know, an IoT device can process a lot less than a server can. You know, and a satellite has other things to think about than things on Earth here, like it has a base station attached to it. So, uh, but, but the rest of it is all software. So we're, we're able to create quantum channels without even putting any software out on the IoT device or the endpoint. So we can actually create a channel that can't be hacked by a standard method without having software on both sides. So it's pretty clever the way our team did it. And then we also have ones where, like, if we're behind a firewall with DoD type stuff, we actually do put reference architecture out there on that node, and we can create that as well. Um, the other part uh, that that is out there, so just to be to give the full picture of quantum post quantum security to the audience, something called quantum key distribution or QKD. This is what I started the show with: the demonstration at Black Hat of a NIST communication system, QKD. So QKD now does use entanglement. So this is where you'll take two devices, and these are pretty robust pieces of hardware, um, and you, you create a quantum channel by entangling two subatomic particles, and they're stored in the devices, and that channel's there. Then you're gonna send data over that channel with, with, while it's entangled. 
And um, you remember the teleportation thing we talked about earlier, how you can go across universes? So that data is moving very fast. Uh, but if anybody tries to listen in, it breaks it because those two particles don't recognize that third person coming in. It breaks the entanglement. And that is a that is a irrefutable, absolutely, there is nothing that can listen in because it's uh, theoretically impossible. At a, it's physically impossible to listen. So it's a really a, quite an interesting thing. However, it's still, uh, it, it, it hasn't really been put into production yet. It's very still research-oriented. Um, it's heavy-duty because you've got hardware on both sides. You can never use it with IoT, and you'll never have it on your, well, I can't say never. Long time before you have it on your phone or in your laptop. Um, but, but maybe like for a telco from, you know, when they're doing those big hauls, you know, with, with a bunch of data, just one big center to one big center can work there. But QKD is another angle of approach at this. We chose the post-quantum cybersecurity route, which means that we can get out to a lot of nodes fast. Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of nodes, quickly get them all quantum secure. And then you've got all that channel secure, and then we can work on the data at rest. So I have to wonder, are any customers simultaneously using a product like Skips and installing quantum at the same time? None that I know of yet. Quantum computing and applications still have work to do because even with 100 qubits, it's still not quite enough to do a lot of things they want to do. It's getting close, though. Um, and they're, they're, they're still working on noise problems. You know, that's one of the issues. So most are the ones our customers right now are really interested in, in getting ready for the time when they could get hacked by quantum or that data gets stolen. Um, but quantum computing, I, I think, has got a number of years before it goes mainstream or before it's a value where you could use it. Now, you've got folks like Volkswagen and BMW and uh, Airbus, um, I think Boeing, um, Lockheed, uh, of course, Google. You've got some folks that have been working with quantum applications for a while. And you've got other companies like Sandbox, which was an Alphabet X spinoff. They're working on quantum applications, quantum sensing. So these guys have, the, the, a lot of people are starting to look at how to do this financial service, looking at for like there's some advanced stuff going on for trades and optimization. Logistics companies are like Volkswagen did a big study in Europe where they, they handled logistics in, um, in I think it was Barcelona um, problems. So if QKD is still a ways off before it's on our laptops and computers, then I take it that quantum computing isn't going to replace our computers anytime soon. Well, the other thing is we'll have, you know, our, our, our regular computers aren't going away. We're still going to need those. We're still going to do a lot of things that you're not even going to waste quantum effort on. And quantum's not great at everything either. It's not the best at everything. It's good at multivariate problems. That's its real thing. And it's good at finding what they call global minimums, where you're trying to, you know, you've got, you've got that... Um, you know, two mountains in a valley and you're trying to find the low point, right? The lowest energy point of that. And that's going to be right there at the bottom of that. Got it. So um, you're going to have both, but it's, uh, and and that'll be how it goes. It's going to be a combination world for a while, but uh, we're hoping that quantum really comes around in a good sense. As long as we're protected, we want it to be there, but I'm just hoping that uh, we, we do it in time. Given that quantum computers in every home is still a ways off, then what is Skip's recommendations and for organizations that need to get ahead of this today? I would say just, uh, you know, those that are running enterprise and government agencies, just start looking into it. Just start studying it, get educated, uh, try some pilots, do something, because it's going to help speed it up anyway. You're going to want to know about this anyway. Uh, you know, we've talked to some enterprises and we get that, well, we're just going to wait until somebody makes us do it or we're going to wait till later. Um, the problem is everybody's data is getting stolen. And I think when they say something like there's only two types of people in the world, one that admit their data stolen and one that don't admit their data stolen, right? That's, that's it. So because it's all getting stolen. Um, the point is, is that just start testing and trying, just get into it, do something with it. Don't sit on the sidelines, because when this comes, I mean, this is a freight train. That light at the end of the tunnel, you know, that's not the end of the tunnel, right? That's a train coming at us. Um, everybody knows it in this industry, so we're just trying to, we're trying to put a little bit of fear into people. Not panic, but a little bit of fear like, yeah, don't let this one get by. You know, don't be the last one in here. Get in there, and again, it's not expensive to just kind of try stuff and educate and, you know, put a team on it to go look at it, meet with some people like us, whatever, just 
just get out there and, and do it because the nation's security depends on it. We need to do this. And so I would leave people with, please don't hesitate to get started at least and try this thing. Try quantum computing. Yeah. I'd like to thank Skip Senzeri for walking me through the quantum physics behind the problem that we're facing today, not just with new computing systems coming in, but how vulnerable the old systems really are, at least in terms of how we think about our encryption. Hey, I'm just getting started with error code. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon or at robertvamosi on Twitter. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. Some great episodes coming up that deal with security risks, agriculture 4.0, the Vastamo data breach, and the world of IoT and medical devices. Subscribe today on your favorite podcast platform. I don't want you to miss out. Stated simply, Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle says that we cannot know with perfect accuracy the position and speed of any given particle, such as a photon or electron. The more we nail down the particle's position, the less we know about its speed and vice versa.